Great to be with you this morning. I am, uh, I grew up on the north side and uh, meet high school grad and the Spokane Valley is like a different world to me. It's so, I feel like a, it's a great privilege to be here. Every time I come out to the valley, I get lost and, um, but I, we were able to make our way here today. So great to see so many familiar faces this morning and to meet some, some new ones as well. We're going um, to look at the uh, a passage in the book of Revelation, if you would stand with me, all the way to the back of the book, Revelation chapter 21, Revelation 21, and we'll read from, uh, starting in verse 1 to verse 4, Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let me, let me just pray for us one more time before we dive into Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. Our Father and our God, we thank you that we get to gather together this morning to be with you. Thank you for that great privilege. Father, would you, by your spirit, enable us to hear you speak and respond. Father, we, we need you to help us hear and to respond. And so now as we begin, we ask you to do that very thing. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was, it was March 2003. I was in Scotland for business, two weeks of work, followed by a week of vacation. I flew from Seattle to London on British Airways business class. If you've ever flown international British Airways business class, it is a beautiful thing. It's amazing. Hot facial towels, you know, constant attendance, uh, great food. And the sleeper pods, the sleeper pod, you, you know, the, the, the ones that fold down completely flat so that you can actually sleep on the airplane. It was incredible. After a week by myself, my wife uh, joined me, and since we were paying for her ticket, she flew economy. No hot towels, no great food, and cramped seating. Even so, it was the best vacation ever. So it's March in Scotland, and it was sunny almost every day. Unheard of. It was amazing. We got to see Glasgow, Edinburgh, Loch Ness. There was only one problem, the flight home. I had a business class ticket, and my wife had economy. At the ticket counter, I asked the, uh, the, the, the ticket agent if I could downgrade 
you know, my ticket so that we could sit together on this 11-hour flight home from London to Seattle. And I mean, we were novices, not world travelers. You know, we were nervous. It was like, can that actually happen? Can we do that? You know, are there seats available? Can we downgrade so that we can sit together? And the ticket agent looked intently at her screen for a couple of minutes, and then she handed us two new boarding passes. And we're like, wow, this is great news. Yeah, it's economy, but we get to sit together on this flight home. When we boarded the 747, we were a little bit surprised because our seat numbers directed us to the upper deck. We were a little surprised by that. And as we got to the, near the top of the stairs, we were really confused because we looked down the aisle and it was all sleeper pods. We're looking at our tickets and we walked down the aisle and we couldn't believe it as we came and looked at our boarding passes, the seat numbers, and they matched two sleeper pods right next to each other. As it turned out, our idea of good news was way too small. The ticket agent had much bigger plans for us. As Christians, I think our idea of the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the gospel, is often way too small. We reduce the gospel to something like this. I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus died in my place. Therefore, I'm forgiven and I can go to heaven when I die. Now hear me. That is incredibly good news. And the gospel includes that good news. But the gospel is way bigger than your salvation or mine. As one author said, the gospel tells the story of God's great project of restoring the whole creation through Christ, healing the divisions of the nations and bringing salvation at every level of human and creational need and loss. In other words, the gospel makes all things new. That's what Jesus accomplished in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And that's the message of the book of Revelation. Jesus is the conquering king, He's the sovereign over human history, and he will come again to make all things new. And this message is given to the church because God knows that life in a fallen world is really, really hard. So God reveals how the gospel ends to give his people hope, endurance, and encouragement. We need to know, not just in our heads, but in our hearts, that the gospel makes all things new. In Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4, we see specifically that the gospel makes a new universe, the gospel makes a new intimacy with God, and the gospel makes a new human experience. The gospel makes a new universe, a new intimacy with God, and a new human experience. Let's take a look at each of these briefly. The first thing the gospel makes is a new universe. Look with me at verse 1. John, the apostle John says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. John sees 
a new universe. There's no single word in Hebrew for, uh, there's no single word in Hebrew to describe the universe. When the Hebrews wanted to express the concept of all of reality, they said the heaven and the earth, right? It's a rhetorical device that means everything. Kind of like when I lose my keys and complain to my wife and I say, I've looked high and low and I can't find them anywhere, right? I've looked high and low, I mean I've looked everywhere. When John says he sees a new heaven and a new earth, he means he sees a new universe. And the reason he sees a new universe is that the first heaven and the first earth has passed away. Passed away in the sense that our current universe is purified or renewed or renovated. Imagine this physical universe free from evil, decay, and corruption. In the gospel, God's salvation comes to individuals, to the church, and to the whole of creation. And church, I'm not making this up. This is not me making this up this morning. The Apostle Paul says it like this. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Imagine our earth with all its beauty free from every hint of evil. And that's what John gets at when he adds, and the sea was no more. In apocalyptic books like Daniel and Revelation, the sea is a symbol of cosmic chaos. In both books, evil beasts rise up from the sea. And these evil beasts exert an evil influence over the entire earth. So John is not saying that there won't be any large bodies of water on the renewed earth. No, when John says no more sea here, he means no more evil on the earth. And here's the point. The gospel makes a new universe. As believers, we'll live in transformed bodies on a transformed earth in a transformed universe full of beauty, complexity, and unspeakable joy. And this is a very different, this is a very different picture from many popular views of an afterlife where we float on clouds and play harps for eternity. Chris Morphew, in his book, What Happens When We Die, asks us to imagine you're hanging out at home one day when suddenly there's a knock on your door. You open it and you find your friend standing there with this ridiculous grin on her face. Like she's got some incredible news that she's just bursting to share. Hey, you say, what's up? But at first she's so excited that all she can do is beam at you. After a long silence, you finally lose patience and you say, what? What's going on? I'm going to the greatest place in the entire universe, she says, and I want you to come with me. Oh, okay, great. Where are we going? 
the words come out in a gasp, like the very thought of it makes her short of breath, to the waiting room at the dentist. Wait, what? Why? Is there something wrong with your teeth? What do you mean, she says, as she tilts her head confused. Why would there be something wrong with my teeth? Well, isn't that why most people go to the dentist? I'm not going to the dentist, she says. I'm going to the waiting room. Why? Because it's wonderful, she says, voice choking up. It's all clean and sparkly and shiny. And the people who work there wear these these cool white outfits. And all day you get to just sit around thinking, isn't this great? I can't believe I'm in the waiting room at the dentist. And a single joyful tear streams down her cheek. Doesn't that sound amazing? Now, does that sound amazing to you? Of course not. The point is, in our minds, the gospel is often so small, it's about as exciting as the waiting room at the dentist. But what John sees here is the restoration of the entire universe. Because the gospel makes a new universe. And that means that this world is not all that there is. There will come a day when this world will be judged and found wanting. Therefore, you and I need to measure our life against the ultimate standard of the new universe. Where things like humility, sacrificial service, and a pure heart are highly valued. We're often tempted to measure our life by the standards of this world, where things like money, power, outward appearance, influence are highly valued. So the question for us is this morning, which world do you measure your life against? Which world do you measure your life against? So first, the gospel makes a new universe. Second, the gospel makes a new intimacy with God. A new intimacy with God. Look at verse 2 with me. John continues, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. God's people are referred to as a holy city, a new Jerusalem, and a bride. All descriptions of intimacy. Here's the picture. God's people move down from heaven to earth as heaven and earth become one. God's special presence fills the earth in the the presence of his people, with his people. John continues, he says this, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. What John sees and hears is a new intimacy with God. An intimacy with God that we were created for, but lost. You know the story. In the beginning, Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. Imagine that. They walked with God in the garden, but because of rebellion, this intimacy with God is broken. 
And all humanity is exiled from God's presence. But here's what I need you to hear this morning. God wants to be with his people. God wants to be with his people. The Bible is the story of God restoring an ever-increasing intimacy with his people. This intimacy is anticipated by the tabernacle and the temple. This intimacy is promised by the prophets. And this intimacy is made possible through the gospel, through the sacrificial life and death of Jesus in your place. The gospel makes a new intimacy with God. The date was January 23rd, 1985. I was living in Butte, Montana at the time, and I had traveled 80 miles east to attend a concert. 80 miles east to Bozeman, Montana, to attend a concert. And the plan was to attend the concert, after the concert, drive back to Butte, get some sleep, and then the next morning, I was going to travel to Spokane to be with my then-girlfriend, now-wife, Stacy. And it was late when I left Bozeman. I don't remember how late, but it was at least midnight, I'm sure, probably later. And on the way back to Butte, I couldn't stop thinking about being with Stacy. And so, as I was driving back to Butte, I decided just to keep on driving. Not the smartest decision I know. Drive 400 miles in the middle of the night over three snowy mountain passes. Not the most intelligent thing I've ever done. But here's the thing. I just had to be with her. I just had to be with her. The gospel tells us that's how God feels about you. He just has to be with you. That's why the Father sent his beloved Son for you. That's why the Son willingly gave himself up for you. That's why the Spirit came to indwell you. God has to be with you. And if you're a Christian, God has made a new intimacy with you through Jesus. You're rinsed clean by his blood. You're adopted as a son or a daughter, and you're indwelt by his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is a promise of greater intimacy yet to come. The gospel makes a new intimacy with God now, and the gospel makes a new and greater intimacy with God in the future. That's what John sees and hears in verses 2 and 3, God's resurrected people in God's presence living and inhabiting a new earth, a renewed earth. John says it like this in another letter. In 1 John, the apostle John writes this to the church and to us, beloved, we are God's children now. We are God's children right now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The gospel ends with you seeing Jesus face to face. Now you walk by faith, then you will have sight. Now you see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. 
Charles Spurgeon once said that it's one of the most natural desires in all the world that when we hear of someone great, we want to see their person. It's no different with Jesus. Deep inside, all of humanity longs for face-to-face intimacy with God because that's what we were created for. That's why nothing in this world ever truly satisfies. Sure, money, sex, power, accomplishments can satisfy it for a time, but not for long. The desires that constantly spring up within us, desires for love, safety, security, belonging, they're all pointers to a deeper desire for intimacy with the living God. C.S. Lewis summed it up like this. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. The gospel makes a new universe with a new intimacy, a new world in God's presence. What that means is the new world is more real than this present world. This world is passing away. The new world is a world of satisfaction, security, stability, and permanence. Here's the point. This world is not your home. This world is not your home. I know it seems like it is, but this world, this world is not your home. You and I will never find satisfaction, security, stability, and permanence in this world. It won't happen. So here's the question. Which world are you looking to for satisfaction, security, stability, and permanence? Which world am I looking to for those things? So far, we've seen that the gospel makes a new universe, a new intimacy with God. And finally, we see the gospel makes a new human experience. The gospel makes a new human experience. Verse 4 describes this new human experience. He, that is God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This new human experience begins with God wiping every tear from your eyes. This means that Jesus knows your specific tears. He knows every single one. And this says that he will personally wipe away every tear from your eyes. Somehow, I don't know how that works, but somehow all our pain and all our losses will be undone. The gospel makes a new human experience that begins with sorrow healed and loss restored. It reminds me of the last page of one of my favorite novels. It's not a Christian novel, full disclosure. It's not a Christian novel, but it's a novel that wrestles with the human experience. What is it like to be human? 
And apparently the author, author believes that, that part of the human experience includes this almost instinctual desire to have our, all our tears wiped away and our losses restored. In the final passage, Kathy is the narrator. Kathy is the main character in the book. And for Kathy, it's been two weeks since Tommy, the great love of her life, has died. And in tears, she stands next to this huge open field. And she says this. There was a fence keeping me from stepping into the field with two lines of barbed wire. And I could see how this fence and the cluster of three or four trees above me were the only things breaking the wind for miles. All along the fence, especially along the lower line of wire, all sorts of rubbish had caught and tangled. It was like the debris you get on the seashore. The wind must have carried some of it for miles and miles before finally coming up against these trees and these two lines of wire. Up in the branches of the trees, too, I could see flapping about torn plastic sheeting and bits of old carrier bags. That was the only time as I stood there looking at that strange rubbish, feeling the wind coming across those empty fields, that I started to imagine just a little fantasy thing. Because this was Norfolk, after all, and it was only a couple of weeks since I'd lost him. I was thinking about the rubbish, the flapping plastic in the branches, the shoreline of odd stuff caught along the fencing, and I half closed my eyes and imagined that this was the spot where everything I'd ever lost since my childhood had washed up. And I was now standing here in front of it, and if I waited long enough, a tiny figure would appear on the horizon across the field and gradually get larger until I'd see it was Tommy. And he'd wave and maybe even call. The fantasy never got beyond that. I never let it. Kathy suppresses the universal human experience to have our tears wiped away, our losses restored. And verse 4 tells us that these longings are not fantasy, but pointer to a future reality because the gospel makes a new human experience. No more tears, no more cancer, no more sexual abuse, no more school shootings. The implication of verse 4 is this, until the gospel actually does make all things new, until the gospel actually does make a new human experience, this present age will continue to be marked by tears, by pain, and by loss. And I want you to listen carefully to me right now. If you haven't heard anything to this point, listen very carefully. Knowing that this new experience is coming is not meant to minimize the pain and sorrow we experience now. God doesn't give us this vision to minimize the pain and suffering and sorrow that we experience now. The Bible is really clear. Our pain is real. So it's good and right to grieve 
and lament. In fact, in the church, let's just get specific, specific, at Grace Christian Fellowship, I think we have a lot to learn about what it means to grieve and lament honestly. This vision is not meant to minimize our experiences now. In fact, it also, verse 4 also assures us that God cares for our suffering and our pain now. He sees every tear. He cares about our pain, and we're told that he draws near. He wants us to come to him with our pain, and we can do that knowing we have a Savior who is compassionate. Jesus knows what betrayal, strained family relationships, and the loss of a loved one feels like. He knows what that feels like. Jesus knows what it's like to face death, trusting in the promise of God to raise him from the dead. So we learn to grieve and lament, knowing our God weeps with us now, And because we know that the gospel makes a new human experience, we can grieve and lament honestly and yet with hope. Maybe you're here this morning like Kathy, the character in the novel, and you're thinking all this talk of a new universe and a new intimacy with God and a new human experience is is just fantasy. It's just wishful thinking. And man, if that's you, I get it. At times I find myself asking the same question. Really? It seems too good to be true. And when I do find myself thinking that way, I remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. There is good historical evidence for the resurrection. There's good evidence that Jesus was crucified dead, that the tomb was empty, that he appeared to many, and the resurrection is the best explanation for why the disciples were transformed from fearful followers, frightened followers, to bold witnesses. The Christian faith is not a blind leap. It's faith based on fact. You can actually test it historically. You can check it out. And when you do, you find compelling evidence for the resurrection. And if the resurrection is true, brothers and sisters, that means that the gospel makes all things new. That's what that means. All this leads to a crucial question. Here's the question. Who will be in this new universe? Who will be there? Who will be in this new universe? As we've seen in the new universe, we'll be face-to-face with Jesus in a relationship so intimate the Bible likens it to a marriage, right? Well, that's why trusting Jesus now is such an important decision. 36 years ago, approximately, I asked Stacy to marry me. We were, we were five at the time. Okay, six. 
36 years ago, I asked Stacy to marry me. If she would have said no then, we wouldn't be together now. And it's like that with Jesus. If you say no to Jesus in this life, you won't be with him in the new universe. Jesus wants you to come to him. He invites you to come to him. In fact, he says this, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He wants you to come to him. He invites you to come to him. But if you refuse to come to him, your place is not in the new universe. God says that for those who refuse to come to Jesus, now their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur That is the second death. It's an awful picture. So you have to decide. Will you come to Jesus? God has given the church the book of Revelation to remind us that despite appearances in the cross and resurrection, the decisive battle has already taken place. Jesus is the conquering king. He's the sovereign over human history. And he will come again to make all things new. These are revealed to give you hope, endurance, encouragement. Yes, the gospel is the good news. It's good news because Jesus died in your place so that you can be forgiven and, be, and go to heaven when you die. That is good news, but the gospel is so much bigger than that. The gospel makes a new universe, a new intimacy with God, and a new human experience. In the gospel, God brings salvation to every level of human and creational need and loss. That means that life in this world is just the beginning of your life. In the last chapter of the last book of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, he said something similar, but in a way better way. He said this, the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world had only been the cover and the title page. I love that. Your life now in this world is but the title and the cover page of the book of your life. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Let me pray. Our Father and our God, we we praise you. We thank you. Father, thank you for this sweet book. Thank you for the book of Revelation. Thank you for this passage.
Father, would you, would you by your Spirit help us hear you speak and respond? Help us respond today, tomorrow, next week. Lord, we marvel at what the gospel, what Jesus in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension has accomplished for us. And so we give thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.